In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So you look in almost every direction today. Um, you'll see some of that white stuff still. There's snow in every direction. For the last two years, look, in every direction that you look, there's probably some tragic story. You all can tell them. Uh, maybe you know about them, or maybe you are one of them. There's tragedy in every direction. And, and now there are new layers of that tragedy we're only beginning to inventory. At the same time, there have been moments, even in these two years, that you just have to laugh. Um, not because we want to deny the sorrow that has accompanied us, but so that you might not be swallowed up by it. Um, I'm about to show you something that you probably saw. It, it kind of happened early on in whatever you want to characterize this two years. And it's just sort of um, a perfect picture of kind of uh, not only where we were in that moment, but maybe a picture of human nature um, up close and personal. And it's a way that's kind of funny. So maybe you saw this. Start working on not touching your face because one main way viruses spread is when you touch your own mouth, nose, or eyes. And of course, enhance cleaning of surfaces. Well, we're always saying the common sense of washing your hands, not touching your face. We're looking at every way individuals come into the country, not just through the... Right. Through but one of the key parts to preventing transmission is washing your hands and not touching your face. You know, there's a, there's a lot of folks that are trying to ask themselves, do I need a mask? I think these are very important things. Working hard not to touch your face. That everyone would have to fill out that would go directly to CDC with that information. Uh, I've been looking around the room here. I can't tell you the number of you who've put your hands to your face in the last uh, 20 minutes or half an hour. I want to know how many of them are from... Hear some of the things about washing your hands and not taking, touching your mouth and your, your nose and your eyes. Can you tell me why it took five days to test the patient in Madison County? The value of hand washing and using sanitizing gels to, if you get the virus on your hands, eliminate it before it finds a way. Don't touch your face. I, my, my kids are so sick and tired of me saying if they scratch their face, don't touch your face. That's how viruses get in real time. Oh my gosh, what did I just do? It is funny. Um, and it's a picture of us, right? In, in the middle of us um, trying to know what the best thing is to do to stay clean, to stay free, uh, to stay free of all those things that take away from you. We, we forget our own guidance within a matter of seconds. It's, it's the nature of ourselves. It's the nature of our moment. And we've been on high alert for a long time now, right? Um, we've had a, a high degree of vigilance to protect ourselves from what uh, can deplete, uh, what can deprive, uh, what can take you out of commission. And that's an understandable response. And that's why I, I know of no better moment in which to look at the passage that we're going to review today than this moment. Because it is a text that has everything to do with hygiene, but of a, not a physical hygiene, but of a hygiene deeper still. And the same kind of attention that you and I have given or not given to trying to stay free and clear and, and, and pure and whatever that might be is, is the same kind of mood or attention that is being given in this passage except for a different kind of hygiene. And so it's perfect <laughs> that we're considering it now. What purifies? That's the question that we come to with this text today. And it will offer to us two alternatives. One, which has all the 
logic and, and practical application of it you would think would work, and then another that is sort of coming out of the blue and it's out of the ordinary to suggest for us what purifies. We're listening to Jesus' dust-up again with the Pharisees and scribes. It's going to talk about sort of things that are like, where is he going with all of this? Be patient. I promise we'll get there. We're in Mark chapter 7. I wonder if you might stand to focus your attention in that direction. Today's central text is from Mark 7, verses 1 through 23. Now when the disciples gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat until they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold on to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you, are no, longer, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and began and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of men, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, dissent, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile the person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, a special shout out to you on this passage. It's the only time that Jesus talks about the outhouse. The kids just said, what's an outhouse, Mom? You ever been in a moment where uh, you're around somebody and they're kind of taking note of you, uh, looking very intently, and with their eyes, you can tell they want to say something, but they won't say something until after a while you get a little um, exasperated by that and you finally say to them, is there something that you want to tell me? That's the moment that unfolds here. 
the Pharisees and scribes have come from Jerusalem, and uh, they're beginning to observe the practices of Jesus and his disciples, and they're, I just touched my face, and, um, yeah. and they're, 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 they're noting something, and they won't say anything at first, they'll just, hmm, duly noted, right, until, until finally uh, they get up the gumption to, to bring up a complaint against Jesus and his disciples, and that complaint is this, what's with you and your disciples not washing your hands properly according to the tradition of the elders? Why are you not doing that? Now, at first, you might be thinking that they're very much concerned about physical hygiene. Um, The very idea of a germ or germ theory would not even pop into somebody's head for a thousand years. So they're not talking about washing your hands so that you don't get anything on your food to eat. This is something else. This is talking about a ceremonial cleanliness of eating properly before the Lord. You ever, uh, you ever go to a party and you quickly discover that you are way underdressed for the moment, right? You walk in there and you go, oh, wow. Oh, so this is a formal. <laughs> um, what do you do? You, you've got nowhere to go. You don't have anything in the car to change into. It's just you. And in that moment, you feel very much out of place. You realize that the occasion you have misunderstood. And so there you are, sticking out like a sore thumb. You don't, so to speak, are, you're not properly attired for the moment. Now, that's, that's sort of a, an, a, a stretch of an analogy. But it is this idea that one comes before the Lord with a proper frame of mind. And the tradition of that day, which had been taken from what the priesthood would do, but now the rabbis had thought, you know what, everybody should do this, that there was a form of washing of your hands, you would use your fist, you would use your fist to wash both hands before you would do anything. And that tradition had begun to develop very expansively. It came, started out with the hands, and then it started talking about you got to wash your cups, you got to wash your bowls, you got to wash your utensils, you've got to wash the couches that you're going to sit on to eat. Again, having nothing to do with germs, having nothing to do with, a, mom, that's gross, you just came out of the bathroom. It's, it's all about trying to eat properly before the Lord, to have his acceptance in what you are doing. So the very idea of cleanliness had become, it really became a sense of godliness. Now, at first blush, you think, okay, what's the problem with with doing something external in order to kind of drive an idea home to you? We do that. There are some things that you and I do on a regular basis that help to remind ourselves of something inwardly that we, it's called a ritual, it's called a rhythm. We, we do that in order to drive something home, to internalize it. Our, our Muslim friends, when they go to worship in the mosque, there is a room off the main hall of the sanctuary, and there they do this thing called wudhu. They sit on a stool and they wash themselves before they go into worship. What's the idea? God is holy, I am not, I should do something to kind of prepare myself for being in the midst of a holy Lord. Okay, on its face, no problem. Let's let's bring it closer to home in in a little bit of a different setting. Paul, what does Paul say about anybody before they partake of communion? In 1 Corinthians 11, he he recommends to everybody because they're missing it. They don't understand what they're doing. He says you should examine yourselves. 
You should take to heart your own heart before you partake of this meal. And that you should be mindful not only of the body of Jesus that is broken for you, but be mindful of the body, the whole body of whom he is the head, to make sure that you are not out of step or out of sorts with anybody in that family. That's why we do a confession of sin. It's why we do an assurance of pardon. Every time we partake of communion, it's this thing that we do over and over again to remind ourselves of something that maybe gets lost in the shuffle if we don't. So that's, that's not the issue at hand. Look, I can't show you the scene from Goodwill Hunting <laughs> for obvious reasons. There's just too much language. But there, if, you, if you've seen that film and you know the moment where Robin Williams' character says to Matt Damon over and over again, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And he has to say it over and over and over and over again until finally Matt Damon's character finally breaks through and he finally says, oh, I get it. There's a way of, of, of hearing things and maybe doing things that never penetrates until you do it over and over again. So on its face, the idea of washing to remind yourself that you come before a holy God, that's not the problem. And Jesus is not saying that's the problem. He doesn't come after the practice. He comes after these people saying, why aren't you doing that? He calls them hypocrites. Now you and I, we, we have all sorts of associations with that word. In the original sense of what a hypocrite was, the first hypocrites, those were the actors. They were the ones that put on masks, they would play a part, and their masks would cover their true self, and they would say things that that person would say, even though that's not what they would say. That's what a hypocrite is. Somebody that's putting on a mask and saying certain things that in no way connects with who they are in themselves. Jesus is saying, that's your problem. Has anybody, anybody been tempted in the last two years to want to denounce something or, uh, or, or, or criticize something? And, and, and you know that um, it's really not about setting things right so much as showing everybody that you're right. No, I know. Never. It's not a problem. We are expunged of that temptation. People call it virtue signaling, whatever you want to call it. The very first virtue signaling folk were these Pharisees and scribes. Do you think for a minute that they cared about whether the disciples or Jesus came before God in a ceremonially clean way? No. They've got an agenda. They're out to expose Jesus and his disciples as frauds. And so all of this concern about their cleanliness before the Lord, that's putting on a mask. Jesus says, your words are worlds apart from what you really worship. You don't care about us. In fact, three times Jesus will call them out for what he says is really at the core of their problem. They have taken a tradition and they have either elevated it to equal status with what God has said or they've used it as a pretext to reject what he has said or to abandon what God has said. You've let this practice become more important to the point that you've obscured, if not trampled, on the very doctrine that you've been given. And, and, and here's where Jesus uses this, this example out of left field. You don't see it coming. You don't know why he goes there at first. I've wrestled with it. But he says, how do I know that that's your problem? That you have come to lose something profound in the shuffle uh, as you've sought to try to apply the law in circumstances the law could never foresee. He, 
he speaks to a question that has nothing to do with washing. It has everything to do with honoring your mother and father. In our day, uh, there's this legal contractual arrangement that you can make called bequests. You may set aside part of whatever your assets are, your estate, to be given over to someone in particular that you decide, declare, and you fix into law. It's a contract. It's, it's to set that aside so that nobody else can touch it. No one else can lay a claim on it. That's called a bequest. Thanks, Ken, for that help this week. You bequeath it. In that day, a new tradition had unfolded, and you heard the word. It's the word korban. And it's this idea that you could set aside part of whatever your holdings were, whatever your assets were, and you would declare that, you would vow that to the Lord in some form or fashion. You didn't even have to decide which. You could vow that, set it aside. You would, again, to speak kind of anachronistically, bequest it to, to the Lord in particular. It goes to the temple, you decide. Okay, so what's wrong with that? What's wrong with sort of saying in advance, I want this portion to go to the direction of the temple and the Lord's worship? What's wrong with that? Nothing. But it's where the rabbis had taken it that it had gone off the rails. What's the fifth commandment? Honor your father and your mother that you may live long in the land. It's the only commandment with a promise, like Paul tells us. Great. Well, how does that korban come into play with this? Imagine this scenario. I'm playing a little bit, so bear with me. Your parents, they find your diaries from when you were a child, and they page through them. And as a joke, they find some of the juicy parts, they scan the image, and they paste it on Facebook. You are enraged! How could you do such a thing? I can't believe what you've done. My most intimate thoughts, you've done that to me. You know what? When it comes to my assets, you get nothing. I'm writing you out. You will have none of it. And, and you tell your local rabbi, this is for the Lord and not for them. And the rabbi says, check, sign here. And then the next day, there's a softening. And you realize, you know, my parents, they did find the key to get me out of the bathroom that I was locked in at one time. And they did remind me never to stick the knife in the socket. So you know what? I was too hard on them. I would like to change my mind. That, that portion that I said that they would never have, I'd like to give it to them. And the rabbi says, sorry, you made a vow. And you go to the rabbi, and you're like, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. These are my parents. Honor your father and mother. You know what? I want to help them. Maybe they won't have the means to help themselves when they are sick. I have the means. And the rabbi says, sorry, vows to vow. Now that's a silly example. And Jesus isn't laughing. He's saying, what your tradition has done is taken something that seems on its face like a principle that you would honor and now you've come to actually defy a commandment of God by upholding this tradition that you think is honoring to God too. They can't be. You are so sick and you don't even know it. You are so lost, my rabbinical friends, and you don't even know it. That's Jesus' complaint. And, and you and I, we, we, we listen to that and we think about these developments and we think about these traditions and we think, that's nuts. Where, where, who, who does that? Who, who allows something so 
fundamental and foundational that seems so in accordance with reality? Who, who lets certain developments of that idea become something that actually contradicts that original principle? Who does that? You do, and I do. We do as a culture. And this may be from way out of left field, but a few years ago, two sociologists, uh, Jonathan Haidt and Mike uh, Lukianoff, they wrote a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. And their social science research kind of looked at some of the ideas that were beginning to percolate. At first, maybe really concentrated ways on college campuses, but which had come to kind of prevail and, and percolate and permeate through the rest of the culture. Three ideas that had come to take hold, which they would argue are untruths. That they, they have a kernel of wisdom in it, but the, the idea has developed in such a way as to distort, if not defy that original idea. And let me just walk through them very briefly to tell you, we are all susceptible to exactly what the rabbis were doing then. Untruth number one. What does not kill you makes you weaker, so avoid pain, avoid discomfort, avoid all potentially bad experiences. Now, maybe you've heard that in college. Maybe you've heard something like that somewhere. Maybe you've heard something like that in the last two years. Do whatever you can to avoid every traumatic experience you have. Now, look, there is a kind of wisdom to that. Bad things are called bad things for a reason. Trauma is called trauma for a reason. And they do damage. And none should take it lightly. However, avoid all of that at all costs, all the time. If you follow that, you are ready for nothing in this world. You are prepared for nothing if you take that to its logical and fullest conclusion. See? Untruth number one. Untruth number two. Always trust your feelings. Never question them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Look, feelings, they're revelatory sometimes. Feelings speak to something profound in us that maybe we are not even aware of. They, are, they can be a shaft into truth that we have not seen, that we have been unwilling to see. But always trust them? Never question them? Which ones? At which hour of the day? I mean, do your own little mental inventory. Imagine if you allowed every single feeling you felt this week constitute absolute truth. Do you know how many times you'd have been slapped this week, baby? Or been arrested? If you, I mean, in the car, really? You'd have been in jail. Every feeling. A, wisdom, a kernel of truth, but it has gone off the rails. See, look, not, neither of these so far have anything to do with being right before the Lord. I know that. It's, it's two sociologists. They're not talking about theology. But let me show you the connection. In each one of those truths or untruths, they're both having to do with what is the path to life? What actions, preparations, preemptions accord with reality? Well, that's what it means to be right with the Lord, is to be right with truth, right with reality. Here's the third untruth. Life is a battle between good people and evil people. Ever seen that crop up in the last two years? Huh. Look, there is a battle 
for belief in what is true. No doubt. There's a battle for belief about whether there is such a thing as truth. And yes, people can do good things and people can do evil things. But are you really going to divide up people into two separate categories, the good ones and the evil ones? You're going to play that game? It's being played, it's a game the whole family can play. It's a game the whole culture can play. When you start separating people into those two categories, you've missed something profound. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, about 50 years ago at an address at Harvard, Remember, Alexander Solzhenitsyn lived through the gulag, survived the gulag, watched humanity at its most monstrous, and wrote a very long book about it. But he himself was honest enough to say this, having survived that, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Good and evil are commingled in each one of us. And even if we do not express it to its fullness, our capacity for it, are you sure that there are only good people and evil people? And that's at work. Now, what does that have to do with anything we've talked about right here about what, what, what purifies us? It's especially this last untruth that connects. Why is Solzhenitsyn probably right? Why are Haidt and Lukianov calling out that third untruth to say there's something very problematic about it? Because of what Jesus says in verse 15, which I think is, it's a one-verse parable. It's the whole kit and caboodle in one verse. He says, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person, those are what defile him. What? At the beginning of the service, at the beginning of the sermon, I asked the question, what purifies? Jesus is here to tell us, you don't know what purifies you until you first know what defiles you. Let me put it very bluntly. If you've had COVID, or if you haven't had COVID, if you have contempt in your heart for anyone, you have a more severe disease than either what you have caught or what you've tried to avoid catching. Jesus is saying the, the washing, the, the foods that you're eating, I mean, that's its own sermon for him to say, it doesn't matter what you eat anymore. That would have ruffled a few feathers, right? That's its own sermon. He's saying it's not those things that defile you. It's what comes out of you. And what he means by what comes out of you is, is talking about the condition and the fruit of your heart of what's inside. And he rattles off this, this long list of things that would reflect both the condition and the fruit of our heart. All of the things that you would never want to get caught doing. Evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Some people think, that's all the fun stuff. Why would we cut that out? What is all of that? It's the stuff that's either hidden in you or expressed by you that will defile you. 
And let's be really clear about what he means by defilement. Usually we, we think of defilement as, you know, defiled diaper, right? Dirty, stinky, want to avoid it, ugly. You know what defilement means? It means rendering something unfit for use. It's a little bit of a stretch conceptually, but if your house burns down, your house has been defiled. It is it has had removed from it what it was both intended for and what it can bless you in. When you defile it, you deprive it of that feature. All of those things are defilements because you participate in any of them. You, I mean, it, you look at that and you think Jesus is going, don't, 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 don't. He's saying, you will burn your house down if you go there. Envy will burn your house down. Adultery will burn your house down. Wicked thoughts will burn your house down. It'll burn your life down, your marriage down, your career down. It'll burn your church down. That's what defilement is, and you will sit in your ashes. He is here to tell us the only way you know what will purify you is you first must know what will defile you. And what will defile you is anything that can come out of your heart. And you just look at that list and you go, um, which ones can I check off? I'm not sure. What's the remedy? If, if that's what defiles, what will purify? I will tell you, at risk of oversimplification, what the culture will tell you about your remedy for your own condition and your own heart. It's really twofold, I think. Dig deep and do better. Look far and wide and, and deep and long into your past and then take some responsibility for yourself, bucko. That's where we are. You've probably heard it. You've certainly heard it in the last two years. Now, look, is there anything wrong with looking back into your past to try to understand your responses to some of the things that shape you? There's great benefit in that. Is there any benefit to kind of thinking about the way your body works and how that can be either an asset to you or a liability? Can, how it can conspire against you to do what is right? How it can darken your mood? Is, is there any benefit to considering that? Absolutely. Is there any point to considering the nature of the circumstances that you're facing in order to understand them well? There's great benefit in that. But at some point, friends... At some point, beloved and welcome guests, whether you believe in God or not, at some point, you're going to need to, the healing of your heart is going to have to rest on the belief that there is an acceptance that is deep, that will level with you about the true condition of what is inside, that there is an acceptance that will intervene on your behalf to rescue you from yourself and everything that goes along with it. You're going to have to, your healing of your heart will have to rest on the belief that there is someone whose love will not let you go even though what feels so natural begins to bubble to the surface again. In this passage, does Jesus give any, any guidance or strategy for a remedy? No! It just ends with saying what defiles us. But inasmuch as he doesn't give anybody guidance or a strategy for a remedy, it's because he himself is the remedy. He's the solution. He's, 
not just the one who rescues the law from distortion. He is the one who lived the law out perfectly. And then he is the one who allowed himself to be defiled, to be treated as something worthy of a curse who was taken outside the camp, out of the way from all the clean people that he might be defiled on a cross. And in so doing, he takes the perfection of his fulfillment of the law and applies it to anyone who would believe in him. You and I, who are all defiled, who all know that list very well, his record becomes ours by our faith in him. That, whether you've heard it for the first time or the millionth time, that's the gospel. He defiles, he allows himself to be defiled to take on our defilement, that we might walk in a newness of life, that he might level with us about what is monstrous in us, but then hold us by the hand and show us a way. He is, as one theologian put it, uh, he does not take our old man and tell us to walk a new way. The gospel of grace is that he is the way. Every one of those things on that list, they have one thing in common. They all represent a disordered love. They all represent what we call an idol. We love something more than what it is really worth and at the expense of loving him best. So if there is any implied remedy in this whole thing, it's this. If he is the remedy, then he is calling upon us to ask him for help. Lord, help me understand why I fall into those things. Lord, help me not just understand them, but grieve over any of those things that I find that defiles and disqualifies and burns my world down. Help me to love you more. That's how we're purified, is with his help on the basis of a work we could not do ourselves. I'll end with this. 1 John 3, Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Dig deep and long into what is in your world and your past. Consider well your own body and the circumstances that conspire against you. But know that the true purification and healing of your heart will come with the belief that you are beloved, having absolutely nothing to do with what you've done. And that in him returning, there is a hope. And it is that hope that holds our feet to the fire to walk in his way. I'm going to pray. And then we're just going to play for you a song. It's by Over the Rhine. I play it every New Year's now. And there's one line from it that I want you to take particular attention to when Karen sings, we're not curable, but we're treatable. And that's why I still sing, may God love you like you've never been loved. I believe that's the healing of our heart. I believe in that comes the purification of what is deepest and most noxious in us. To believe that we are in fact beloved and that he will come for us. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, help us to give up trying to clean ourselves up. But help us to believe that you mean to do something in us that's as profound as what you've done for us. And it probably won't be long before this afternoon we will think that that's just a pipe dream. And I ask that you would renew our hope again to believe it even a little, a mustard size. That you would help us to take to you all those things in our hearts that we see most clearly. To help us to understand what's there, to help us to grieve what's there, but mostly to help us to love you more than what we've loved instead. We need your spirit to do that. We need you to build faith in us for that. Help us now to believe that there is a love that is stronger than our sin and a future that is greater than our past or even our present. In Jesus' name, amen.